Great. Welcome to Arash's World. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Robert A. Jensen, and and uh, welcome to Arash's World. How are you doing today? I'm good. And yourself? Wonderful. Thank you. And so um, I'm very curious to talk to you about your experiences and your latest book, your second book, and it's it's quite unique. So how would you introduce yourself just to get started here? How would you introduce yourself? And then we'll jump right into your book. Uh, well, that's a that's a question I get a lot, and I mm-hmm. usually just tell them I am me, and um, you know it it really is a is a hard one to answer because I've transitioned, I've I've retired from the company, so if you're asking how would I introduce myself from what I've done, well, I had a very different job for many years, and that was responding to mass fatalities to try to help bring some order to the chaos and some management to a, a crisis that usually resulted in a large loss of human life. And that meant helping the living by trying to recover the dead, to give them a name, to give them an identity, which is, is a human right, and to help make it possible for the living, the families, to transition from what was normal to what will be normal. I don't use the word closure because I don't think people can just all of a sudden close off uh, a chapter that dealt with a loved one. And the events I go to are often large, with large numbers of, of deceased. I've been to two events that have killed almost a quarter of a million people each in my lifetime. And, and those people died in about the same time it takes to drink a cup of coffee, just a matter of minutes. They're sudden, they're unexpected, they're often violent, and not all of them result in an easy recovery and identification. In fact, in many of the events I go to, some people are never returned to the families because we don't, or we're not able to make a a recovery of a loved one, or we're not able to make an identification. And so for these people, it means that their loved one went on a trip walked out the door, went to work, and just never came home. And so for many of those families, it's a very hard situation to to expect them to make a transition or to expect that this just happened and they'll they'll get over it is unrealistic and, and not helpful. So a large part of my career was trying to help people make a transition and to help understand the processes and what to expect. And I want to thank you for for doing all that you're doing, all that you've done up to here. It's um, a GQ magazine called it the best. You're the best at the worst job in the world, and uh, to me, it just sounds 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 terrifying, horrifying, and uh, just very painful to go through that. But your book is called uh, "Personal Effects: What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living," and um, it's it's a very moving uh, title. It makes me emotional just just reading the title. And um, but I sense also here, although you've seen the worst, the the uh, utter worst of of humanity and what can happen, also nature, natural disasters. Um, at the same time, there is hope, and you are um, you're still optimistic about things, and you are using that kind of knowledge for for the living. So it's that that transition. So I'd like to uh, talk a bit more about your book. Um, what inspired you to do to write it? And is uh, am I correct in assuming that there is uh, a positive line there? There is a silver lining, so to speak, throughout all of this. 
Uh, yeah, I'd like to think there's a silver lining. I, I'm generally a pretty happy-go-lucky person. I, I, I enjoy life, and, um, and I'm going to make the most out of it every day I have because I don't know how many days I have. As I get older, I obviously have less, but I don't know if it's tomorrow or 30 or 40 years from now. So I want to do the most that I can and have, have the most fun that I can. We get one go-around. And I, I use the example of a, of a woman who was recovered from the Oklahoma City bombing back in April 1995. And she had a high heel shoe on and a, and a tennis shoe on. So people go, well, why, you know, why would somebody have one, you know, one high heel and one tennis shoe? Well, you know, as a lot of people know, high heel shoes may not be the most comfortable to walk to work in. So a lot of people will wear a tennis shoe or something and then keep a pair of their work shoes or dress shoes at the office and then change when they get to work. Well, she was in the process of changing her shoes when the bomb went off and probably sitting at her desk or somewhere. And had she been a few minutes late that day, she wouldn't have been in the morgue. She might have been the stairwell, which was better protected. She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything to deserve to, to die in a, in a, in a wantonless or, or mindless or pointless attack like so many are. It was just her time. So we, we don't get to pick time. And, and although I see people trying to accelerate the clock sometimes, um, it is a gift to live and in, in our country, the United States, and a lot of more developed countries, we take a lot of things for granted. And I think we forget about the, the preciousness of life and how fast things can change and how lucky a lot of people are. So we should enjoy life because these things have been happening throughout history. People are born or are going to pass and die. But a lot of people, I think, don't necessarily set realistic expectations or understand that. And life is portrayed, unfortunately, very cheaply on TV. It's very yeah. easy in a video game to, to, to kill. That's just not the real thing. And so I, I think people don't appreciate it. And inconveniences become critical and emergencies. And if we don't have something right away, then it becomes a frustration and we, we end up losing, I think, some of the value or some of the appreciation. So yes, I, I tend to be more optimistic and I, and I hope the book has some optimism in it. You asked me what prompted me to write the mm -hmm. book. What, I never started with this plan to, to, to be a writer. I've written technical manuals um, before and I've sat on panels for you know, government publications. But after that article you mentioned in GQ came out, uh, I had a, a book editor, a book agent come to talk to me and my husband and say, look, this would be a great book and uh, let me help you get the story out. And so I only had two requirements is one, it would take me time because I didn't have time to write a book. And two, it had to be done in a way that did not sensationalize the work or sensationalize the deceased or the families and something that if a family picked up, I would hope their reaction would be, I wish they'd been there, or I'm glad that, that, that Robert or Kenyon was there. And um, then I'd be okay with it. Otherwise, I, I didn't want to do it. Because for me, this has always been a job. I go to work, I come home. I, I 
nobody forced me into this line of work. It's what I've done most of my adult life. For families, they didn't volunteer to be in this role. And I would always hope that their memory or what's done to help the living and to, you know, to honor the dead is always done with, with that in, in mind to make sure that the, the memory is a positive or, or memory that they want. Yeah, I want to pick up on some of the things that you're you're mentioning here, especially one of the things, the idea we're privileged. And but also the idea that if anything happens elsewhere, it doesn't affect us. And I think COVID has changed that. And the current situation uh, that we're going through has changed that too, that perception that it's happening over there and it doesn't affect me. And now we see that the, the world is really interconnected. We're really like globally interconnected with each other and to take these things seriously. So when we see tragedy happening elsewhere in the world, um, that we are also not safe and we should start preparing for things. And so um, this, do, do you agree that there's kind of maybe a mind shift that is going on where we don't see things isolated? We are learning to appreciate also, I think a lot of people still don't, but uh, quite a few do appreciate what we have and that it's, um, it's not, we shouldn't take it for granted. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I agree in that to me, hmm. uh, I base reaction and, and impact on was there a real impact. So if you look at other crises in history, you will see geographical regions that may have been impacted and then small cities. You take a, a plane crash, TW800, for example, and there'll be a school in Pennsylvania that will remember that crash more so than others because there was a, a group of um, high school students going to mm -hmm. France for a class. So that impacted a large part of the community. With COVID, I would be challenged to find worldwide a person who didn't know someone who was sick exactly. or didn't know someone who didn't survive or didn't suffer a change in routine. Um, in, in economic ability, either they had to, they lost their job or they, they couldn't go to the office or they had to put on a mask and their, their plans were restricted. So that was a direct impact, um, regardless of the origins or how fast the, the virus spread. That was an impact that was felt almost universally. With what's going on in Ukraine, we see it every day and, and we know it. And because governments are making a very quick and I, and I think appropriate and proper reaction by sanctions, support. Again, we're, we're feeling some of that with higher prices. And, and I think most people are, are very happy to support that. I, I think there'll be a much bigger impact of Ukraine down the road, and that's with food um, because of the amount of wheat and uh, sunflower seeds, sunflower oil, and sunflower products that come out of the Ukraine and Russia that, that aren't going to come out this year. And, and you have countries like Lebanon that I think get almost 50% of their wheat from there. And, and bread is such a staple in so many countries. So I think there'll be some broader impacts from the war that, again, are more direct. But I don't know if people are being more prepared. Mm, yeah. I don't know if people are being more resilient. Um, I think people are tired. I think that you know, we are starting to come out of, or we have come out of COVID as a pandemic. It's now endemic. And I think that people will soon forget about it. And unfortunately, we'll go through another pandemic. It may be 70 years, it may be 50 years, it may be 10 years. Disasters are going to happen because we're humans and humans make mistakes. 
and natural disasters occur because we can't prevent, you know, an earthquake or a hurricane. And we're going to have some of those events. Um, so I, I would hope that people have learned from the past, but my experience is that many don't, sadly. And, and it's coming from all sides. There are things, I, I love this serenity prayer where I say things that I can control and things that are outside of my control. And we get with natural disaster, nature, we adore it, we love it. But at the same time, this is this brute force that can, whether you had experiences, uh, the experience of the tsunami the, uh, that, that happened as, as well as, uh, again, uh, earthquakes and earthquake in Haiti, um, you were there to, to help. And so uh, I think it just also shows you that we shouldn't idealize things, romanticize things, that there is this, this like dark force there as well that's outside of our control and, and impacts us in so many ways. Well, and I, yeah, and I'm not sure I'd call it a dark force. Um, mm -hmm. Nature is, to me, is wonderful, and the earth is a, mm -hmm. is a living, breathing planet that mm -hmm. I, I don't think always gets the best care from, from, its, from its human inhabitants. Yeah. Um, and things are going to happen. So where people, I think, focus is, and, and I think you alluded to in the serenity prayer, I think people focus on the things they can't change, mm -hmm. overlooking the things they can change. And I, I again, I, I love analogies. You look at the old Hitchcock movies and, and the fear, the scare in the movie, because the old Hitchcock movies didn't have violence, but it was mm -hmm. the threat of violence. It was the imagination. And so that's what scared the moviegoers. And I think the same thing about the natural disasters is it's not the actual event, it's, it's the threat of the event, it's what could happen. So the way you combat that is you say, okay, what could happen? And what are the things I can do to prepare to survive the event? And then more importantly, what can I do post-event? How do I help the recovery? Because so many people get caught up and, and how do I evacuate? Well, what does it mean when I've evacuated from a hurricane area? Does it mean two or three weeks of disruption? Does it mean I need to think about putting my kids in a different school? How do I rebuild? What, what's my funding for where I live? What can I do to make the rebuilding that much easier? And I think when people are better prepared, it is much easier to face the threat than when People are ill or unprepared. And that's, again, I think one of the major problems I see. And many people tend to ignore it and say, well, I'm safe here. This won't happen. This won't affect us. And I think that has slightly changed. I, I, I love how you mentioned uh, Hitchcock, who, who I love. And it was so simple to create fear. But it seems we've become desensitized. And it takes so much more to, to create that fear within us. And if we look at in terms of media, I think the Vietnam War changed many things because they had cameras that would show the brutality of, uh, of the war scene. And now we've moved to, to social media and that's for better and for worse, because at the same time where we have direct access to, to people who are living in the area, we also get a lot of nonsense like fake news and conspiracy theories and so on that are going around that are telling us it's fake. And so it's not true that the war is not happening. And uh, one of the things that really moved me was the Sandy Hook uh, massacre where people said it was staged and so on. So it just where children got killed and, and just kind of, it, it's scary at the same time that people could use something that could be used for uh, 
giving us information, giving us insight, and take it into a completely wrong direction, a very harmful direction, I think. Yeah, I, I like social media and that allows a government or a company that's trying to help people or agencies that are involved in response communicate directly with the people they're trying to serve. What gets lost is for a lot of these people who are posting things on their own is a context. And then instead of verifying it, it's it's done. And I, and I called it Katrina chasing ghosts. You know, somebody's reporting the deceased. Well, you know, 10 different reports, a little bit different, tie up a whole bunch of teams to go look for, for bodies that don't exist that originated from one false report. Obviously, there are many real reports. I, I think the other thing, too, about the proliferation of cameras and, and, and the cameras in Vietnam and, and the news, I think, had a fantastic role. I think the negative from that or the, the part that worries me is that when we see the violence on TV or the violence in a game or a movie, it's quite graphic and it's real but it doesn't come multidimensional. You may hear the sounds, but they're not the same on TV when you hear them in person. They're certainly not the feelings of the, the explosives going off or the smell, the smell of death and the smell of fear. And because of that, I think people think that it's not as bad as it is and therefore it's not as important as it is. And they also don't show the aftermath. I was in the Balkans. I went into Bosnia in, in I think, November 1995, um, just, just as Dayton was being signed or, or, or right out of the day or two after the Dayton Accord were signed. And it's very different when you go into a country that had been on TV for the Olympics or that was modern and you now see entire villages that are empty or destroyed and homes destroyed. And there's no insurance to repair those homes. And I'm sure there's half in some places that weren't even inhabitants to come back. Just like when I walked through New Orleans after Katrina or New York City after 9-11 or Oklahoma after the bomb. Few people actually see the real cost of these things. And, and because of that, I think they're more willing to say, um, they're okay when, when they're really not. Sometimes we don't have a choice. I don't think we have a choice in, in the Ukraine. Some people only react to force. But I think often we do have a choice. And so you, you chose to focus on personal effects, which I think, it, again, symbolizes that connection to, uh, to the people uh, that we have lost, people have lost in, in these tragedies. And, um, and I find that quite interesting. Your comments about closure, too, that it's not something that would, that would end. So how much more important do these personal effects uh, become, especially when, in many cases, the bodies can't be found? And uh, um, how, have, what have you seen yourself when, when, when how do people respond to those as surviving family members? And what, uh, um, what effect does it have on them? Well, it, personal effects are hugely important because we, as humans, we, we memorialize parts of our lives. We mark important dates and celebrate mm -hmm. them, anniversaries, birthdays, um, religious holidays, individual days, like, again, a birthday. And we, you know, we have a typical 12 month calendar for most people. And that's, that's how you mark life, the progression of life. And similarly, 
we mark our relationship with people with things that bring back memories. And, and again, often those memories are enhanced or increased with tactile touch, smell. Um, I smoke a pipe sometimes and I always get people come up to me and say, Oh, you remind me you're, you know, my grandfather. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, mm-hmm. I, hopefully I'm not, not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And um, it's because of the smell of the pipe and because you don't see too many people smoking pipes anymore. So uh, a note that we send a loved one, a, a special bracelet or a ring, something that's very powerful. And we also know our, our family member, our loved ones would not just discard or be careless with. When they're returned, they're often that part for the family that lets them know that, sadly, this, this is real. This isn't going to change. And somebody isn't going to walk through the door and be okay. Life is not going to be like it was. It can be okay in a new way, and it will be different. But for that acceptance, that acknowledgement, there's often has to be something tangible. In the absence of a loved one, human remains, a casket, an urn, something to bury or to put in a mausoleum, a personal effect is that physical reminder to help, sometimes help people. And, And a lot of people very much want those special momentums back, the toy. Um, we get a lot of, of can, you know, can, we find it instance a lot of cameras and images. And after, of course, the authorities look at them to make sure there's nothing for evidentiary value. It's important we get those back because it's often the last pictures. It's, it helps us put us in the mind of, of our loved one. Mm-hmm. It's it's a reminder, and so sentimental value of things. That for me, that's that's quite important too. And it's it's uh, like we connect things that become emotional for us and important, even though the actual value might be much less, as you are explaining. And just to have uh, give you one example, which is trivial, of course, in, in comparison to what you're talking about. But um, I worked in Switzerland for one summer, and it it was pretty intense, like two months of pretty intense work teaching and so on, and pretty constantly. We got one day off in the month and one. Summer Sunday. So it was, it was draining, but at the end I, and it got paid for it though, but at the end I got a Swiss army knife and that became so special to me. And so I, I was holding on to it and somebody stole it from me later on years later. And it hurts so much because it's like, even if I bought a new one, it would not replace the original one that was given to me. That was a symbol of my dedication, my work and uh, their gratitude towards me. And so I think the um, symbols become imbued, the effects become imbued with so much that we have to have empathy for people uh, who's, who see it as such. And one of the, the things that um, kind of shocked me was the movie Worth, which was about um, 9-11, the after effects, and how they're trying to figure out how much a person was worth and how much compensation they should get. And to me, I find like I understand it, but I find that horrifying to try to put a, 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 a price tag on, on, a, on a human being. Yeah, the, the value of life. We, we all actually have a an economic value. They use formulas for mm-hmm. when they're trying to determine, you know, when you implement a safety device, is it cheaper to recall and do something or to pay off a lawsuit? Mm-hmm. It's a very cold um, yes. system, but it's one that unfortunately is necessary to help figure out when somebody is lost, what are the living, the people left behind? Because I, you could be worth a million dollars, but if you're deceased, it's of no value to mm-hmm. you. It's 
who did I provide support to? And how do I make that person economically whole again? The challenge, and so I don't have a problem with that process. The challenge I have with is a lot of companies go about achieving that amount in a very difficult way. And, and maybe said a different way is since an economist can, or an accountant can look at me, two accountants, three accounts, 10 accounts can take, you know, white male, 56 years old um, with an adult child and a husband and say, okay, here's, here's what your economic, here's what the loss mm-hmm. of you is economically to the people that are dependents if, if they are dependents. And that's pretty straightforward. So why then, if that's not very subjective, but objective, why is it hard to get there? Well, it's hard to get there because companies approach responding to a disaster as if it hasn't occurred. And they forget that these are people who come to them first. The first call a family makes isn't to the media or to a lawyer. First call a family makes is to the head of the airline or the airline or a company that's involved and says, I know something's happened because I've seen it on TV. So I don't need you to tell me what's happened. I need you to tell me what's going to happen to me as a living person. What's next? How do I transition? What to expect? And then help me through that process. And then the settlement is actually very straightforward. And if you look at 9-11, and I, I haven't seen the movie, but I don't know if it goes into that there was the mediation fund, which was a good fund to make this easier for people, but people didn't have to accept the mediation. I think about 90 people chose to do litigation. And what did it take for the last three or four lawsuits to settle? They weren't settled on dollar amount differences. They were settled on the fact that the families wanted apologies from the heads of the airlines and the security company. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who become advisors when something happens and they'll tell the CEOs and leaders, oh, don't say you're sorry. But I've stood in front of several hundred family members more times than I'd like to remember. And I've been in there when a CEO or a government agency has stood up and said, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry that we have to be here. I'm very sorry that you're here. I'm sorry for the loss of your loved ones. And you can feel the change in the room and the audience. Because now, instead of becoming defensive, becomes about, I want to use my resources to help the recovery. And what, what I tell people is you don't control the event. The events occurred. You can't defuse a bomb that's already blown up. But what you control is the response. And the expectation of the people, for the most part, is that they know mistakes can happen, intentional or accidental. Intentional isn't really a mistake, but I think you know what I mean. But the people who usually make those aren't, aren't the people they're talking to. It's not the heads of the company. Mm-hmm. So they're looking to them for help. And the minute they say they're sorry, they've now taken control of the response and using their resources to help make it easier for people. And that's where you see the real difference in the settlement process. I use the phrase sometimes litigation as an extension of rage. Because if I'm suing for the loss of my loved one, can I get back what I really want? I've never been unable to uninjure a person or bring back the dead. Well, maybe there are some people who can do that. I've yet to see it. So when I'm suing, what am I suing for? There's often other reasons than just a, a settlement because people don't 
want somebody they know to be involved in one of these events so they can get rich. Most people would give anything to not have had it occur. I love your insights. And so it's it's often like when we have a funeral, when we have grief, we want it to be witnessed. And I was reading David Kessler's book, uh, The Grieving Expert, and how that's so important for us to, to deal with the pain and to have it acknowledged by others. And so I, I'm kind of shocked. Why are people not ready to to apologize, especially if there is, they had a hand in it, as you talked about some business executives, what is stopping them from, from opening up and giving the other person what they need, which is in, in many cases, just recognition and apology of saying you're sorry. Why are people so hesitant and resistant to, to that? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One, it's shock. Uh, these, these executives are in shock because I, and again, I have a different view on life than a lot of people when, cause I ran a company, so I'm a multinational business. So dealt with all the normal business aspects, good news, bad news, things that happen, and, you know, and people come in my office, Oh, kind of problem or there's bad news. And yeah, you know, my first thing is, well, how many people died? None. Okay. Well, that's really not that big a problem. It's, it can be fixed out, but I have a very different perspective yeah. than most people. So it's shock because a lot of people, even though they plan, I don't think ever expect as an airline CEO to lose a, a plane or as a country to, to have the Oklahoma City bombing or, you know, or 9-11 or to be in the nightclub and use pyrotechnics and start a fire that kills, you know, 100 people or 60 people. I, I don't think that people who are involved in, in that have that realistic expectation wow it, it could happen and then it's now it has happened so there's shock and then there's fear fear is a very strong motive i think that the power of fear is a much more motivating force than the power of good or a reward and so we start to get advisors our insurance companies attorneys oh you you know there's liability here you can get sued you could you know have a criminal charge or people are going to hate you. And, mm -hmm. and here's the thing that's, you almost create that as a self-fulfilling prophecy by the way you respond. And you look at 9-11 where Cantor Fitzgerald lost, I mean, an ordinate amount of people. In fact, I think the CEO lost his brother very sadly. And he, you know, his pledge was, I want to take care of these families. I want to make sure that there's settlements, that there's money for them. Not things I'm legally obligated to do, but things I want to do. So to do that, I have to preserve capital. So let's stop salaries. And that was met with fury by the family members. And, you know, and then the CEO was like, well, my gosh, I'm here trying to help people. Why is this? Well, it's because he forgot the emotional impact. You made the decision to tell the family members that in your opinion, there was no more hope that the loved ones were dead. Now, Logically, you could look at the wreckage and say, yeah, we're probably not going to find any survivors. But you forgot about the emotional. You forgot that there was no opportunity for a family member to say, no, I'd rather have just a weekly paycheck. Just so for me, until there's a body, then I didn't give up hope. I, didn't, I wasn't the one who, who abandoned hope or abandoned my loved one. I, there's a lot that goes into this both for the thinking of the family and the thinking of the CEOs. So it's, it's um, a challenge at times.
would it be helpful to have them interact directly with the victims as well as potentially take them to the, the place where it happened so they can firsthand experience uh, what it feels like as you do when you go to, to, to help them? Would that make a change? Would that be something that would help us here? Well, I, I think that interaction has to be managed. Um, and and mm. that is at the Family Assistance Center at the briefings. That's the interaction. Let them answer questions, let them take questions, let them see the families. And I also think it's very important that they go to a site so they can understand because in a crisis, I, I don't want managers, I want leaders. And, and leaders are everywhere at once. Leaders are reassuring. Leaders are saying, yes, the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Leaders are, yes, it's hard. Look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sleeping. It's miserable. Not complaining, not like... Um, the head of BP who said, you know, I want my life back too. And when the, when we had Deepwater Horizon, but instead saying, wow, this hurts. And, and I'm, I'm not you, I don't know how you feel because everyone feels different, but I can tell you how I feel. And so, yes, there are things. And, and you see that with the current president of Ukraine, his, you know, his, his response has been, I think, hugely empowering to the people of Ukraine and the people of the world. It's, mm -hmm. no, I'm involved. I'm going to feel this pain. I'm not, I'm not escaping. I'm not taking exile. I'm sharing the same fears and, and threats and the same concerns that everyone else has. And my job is to help organize and manage the, you know, our defense, our, our reaction to this invasion. And that's what a good leader does. But we raise a lot of managers. We don't necessarily raise leaders. I mean, the average CEO is, what, three to five years? Because they're always focused on quarterly returns. And that's a short-term strategy. And crisis response is a long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. And presidencies are kind of short-term in comparison, too. So that, that kind of applies to a certain extent to them as well. And I'm kind of surprised why uh, veterans are not given their due. Because it's like, these are people who are really putting their lives at stake, a lot of them dying, sacrificing themselves. And I always feel that they, they come out short, like in, in by pretty much any government. And I, I, I'm wondering why that is, not really like um, celebrating those who are willing to, to, to sacrifice their lives. Yeah, I could, I could really get started on the, the veterans issues. Uh, and, and ironically, I, I'm working right now on an issue that um, going back to World War I, but mostly World War II on trying to help families get some of their loved ones who were classified as unknowns following World War II identified uh, because it's for right now, it's a huge battle where families have to litigate to get something that really was a promise the nation made at the end of World War II, which was we'd bring your loved one home. Um, I, I, I don't know the political reasons. I know the history going back to, my gosh, uh, you know, World War I or even earlier about veterans groups saying, here's what I was promised. I, I think it's hard because I think wars are very real and there's very real loss. And I think um, when people come home, we'd rather forget about things that were unpleasant because we're just going to focus on the new. And I don't think that's the best response or healthy. And, and I write about in the book about the Balkans where, you know, we had these independent countries that came together as Yugoslavia. They had a very strong leader, Marshal Tito. Um, and necessarily the best leader or good leader, but strong, kept the country together. And of course, as soon as he died, the, the country you know, within a few years descended into 
uh, turmoil with this. No, remember this. We have to avenge this. Um, remember your loved ones who were killed, your ancestors. And so we had a, a what well, was a very cosmopolitan country descend into a very brutal civil war. And the one thing we did different after uh, the, the war in the Balkans is start a process to account for the missing and the dead. And combine some of that with the International Court in The Hague for justice, not just with, you know, leaders, but, but all levels. And in this, I hope by being able to return the loved ones to the families, to give them some answers, to stop the wondering, I hope that it will help make sure that this doesn't occur again. It's far too early to see, and I don't know, but to me, it's a, it's a great example of understanding some of the big picture problems beyond just rebuilding, but understanding the emotional toll war takes on people. I'm also so curious about personal questions that I have about you. How did you embark on this? Because I believe on this career of uh, crisis management and responding to emergencies, because I, I believe you, you studied criminology and have uh, wanted to get to law enforcement, but what, what happened that, uh, that swayed you in that direction? Well, I, I went to school and I had had to pay for college. I'd wanted to be an army officer, a military officer. It was my entire career aspiration. And so I was in ROTC, which is, you know, in the U.S. how you get your commission, one of the ways you get your commission. And um, I had to pay for school and I had to pick a major. So I picked criminology because I mm -hmm. thought it was interesting. I didn't think it would be the easiest. I didn't think it'd be the hardest. I thought it was a, you know, it was an interesting major. And part of the degree requirement back then, and this is you know, back in the 80s, was that you had to do an internship because a lot of people would graduate, but then actually couldn't go into law enforcement. They couldn't pass the background or pass the psychological exam or just didn't like it. So the degree was not going to be used. Um, so I, I went as a, we called a reserve for Fresno County Sheriff's Department and then worked for state narcotics for a while. It was a blast. I loved it. I mean, when you're 21 years old, it's a great job in college. Um, but then I got my orders for active duty um, because I'd gotten commissioned. So I, I got my orders for active duty and they don't come with a reply. In other words, you don't have to reply that you'll be there because you're not being asked if you want to be there, you're exactly. reporting. And um, I did my first assignment in field artillery with Pershing missiles, which, you know, older people remember were the uh, strategic uh, nuclear weapons that we had based in, in Europe. And then from there went to quartermaster and under the quartermaster's mortuary affairs and I know the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time, um, worked on doctrine and had the Oklahoma City bombing, Haiti, Bosnia, a whole bunch of different events that I just ended up going to. So when I left the army, I came to the company Kenyon, which was owned by a, a US public company at the time and became the CEO a few years later and then uh, took it private a little bit after that and then just stayed because it's it's what I was was good at. So it's not necessarily, I think, something I ever had a plan to be. I'm not that organized. I'm very organized about certain things, but never about things like that in life. Just, you know, what happens, happens. And how do you deal with all the stress? How do you deal with post-traumatic stress disorder of the, what you're seeing as well? Because you're there firsthand. Um, how do you deal with that? Anything you'd like to share? Yeah. Well, I always tell people that when you go to an incident, you're going to come back a little bit different each time. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know off the top of my head the number of incidents I've been to, whether you know bombings or plane crashes or war zones or um, 
you know, just accidents or even individual fatalities. Um, I always remember it's not about me because I didn't, nobody forced me to go. I was, you know, volunteered, joined the army. I volunteered in the company, on the company. So I wasn't being forced to go. So I went with a focus that didn't matter what I thought, didn't matter what I wanted or didn't want, because it's not about me. It was about the people we were trying to help, the families, the ultimate customer. Um, and so I, I think over time that just became the how I how I managed and, and again having a little bit different life. If you you know you recall, there's some sections on the book growing up and then you know being a deputy and having to tell people their loved ones were deceased. Um, I'm not sure there's not an impact or stress. Things that irritate most people don't irritate me. Things that irritate me don't irritate most people. So it can make a, you know, it can always be a challenge in a personal relationship because people expect a certain emotional response. And if you don't have one, it's like, well, you know, why doesn't this bother you? And you mentioned this too earlier, when in terms of leadership, it really comes out when there's a crisis. That's when the leaders really step up, whereas you can show that. And I think that is also your experience because you, you've had experiences of leadership where you have to react to situations, to things that are difficult, making tough decisions. And um, I believe that you're also a, a, a great person to, to learn from in terms of uh, leadership and, and, and leading a crisis or, or difficult situations. Well, thank you. Uh, leadership is a privilege. Mm -hmm. And I use the example, the army I joined, which I don't think was the army I left, was as an officer, you went to bed last you ate last, you took care of yourself last. And it wasn't, and it became uh, the analogy or the example is it became where if you and I were walking in the woods and all of a sudden we hear a bear and I've been down to put on my tennis shoes. You say, Robert, you know, tennis shoes won't help you outrun a bear. And I say, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. And if you trip all the better for me, that's not leadership. No. Leadership isn't about what you can get as a privilege or a perk. The perk or the privilege of leadership is being able to help people, is being able to make another generation better, being able to guide people through, through times to help them achieve strength. Unfortunately, a lot of people, I think, have confused leadership as to what, what can they get out of it for them. And, and you see it as an example of you know, some of our political leaders mm -hmm. today compared to some of our, our early They tell you what leaders. to do, but they're actually not taking any action themselves. It's easy oh, to tell yeah. people what to do. <laughs> yeah, do as I say, not as yeah, I do. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, you lead so much by example. And so if I'm telling you to be late and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm telling you to be on time and I'm always late. Well, sometimes as a leader, you're going to be late, but that should be the exception, not the rule. Um, you know, Ted Cruz in the ice storm. That's oh, yeah, <laughs> yes. bad here. Let me, let me get on a plane and go to Mexico. And then mm -hmm. all the equivocation about it was booked or all that. Leader requires sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. return on that is, again, the benefit of, of watching how well people have done, watching the success, watching what has, has developed and knowing how worse it could have been. But you've actually and your role help make it better. But, but again, and sadly, I don't necessarily see that as much as I'd like to.
Yeah, and I agree. I mean, respect people think it's automatic, it's earned. And so when you get a leader, people voluntarily follow them. It's not that they have to, they just flock to them in many ways. And uh, I don't think we have enough leaders, but it's great when 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 we do, when you do, do get a few who, who have that mindset as, as you do as well. I just want to mention, so where Robert A. Jensen, you are an advocate and educator, a global leader in crisis management and ma mass fatality response. You were the former chairman of uh, Kenyan International Emergency Services. And your second book, which sounds very fascinating, is Personal Effects, what Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living. Thank you so much for being on Arash's World. Thank you for this interview. I've uh, learned so much. And it's, it's, uh, it's uh, such a privilege to have a glimpse into a world that is completely un unknown to me. And uh, thank you for sharing your experiences and insights here on Arash's World. You're welcome. I very much enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for having me. Take care. Best of luck to you. You have a good day.